uh, to the churches in Revelation, and typically we take uh, a little bit different route through the summer to, uh, to look at a different portion of God's Word. We will be doing that again this year, uh, but a little bit late. Uh, this current discourse that Jesus is in will run through the end of chapter, four, uh, chapter 13, rather. Uh, and so my goal is, before we break for the summer, I'd like to get through uh, this next little portion. So we have maybe... Oh, maybe 15 more weeks. That's a joke. Uh, maybe five more weeks, four more weeks uh, to get through chapter 13, uh, and then uh, we will be breaking for the summer, uh, and that summer series is yet to be determined. So uh, stay tuned for that, but today, uh, coming to the end of chapter 12, today we're going to be studying verses 54 and going to the end to verse 59. You can find that, if you've got an ESV, most likely on page 872. Today, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 54 and reading through the end of verse 59. And before we read God's word together, please join me as we go to him in prayer and seek his blessing upon our study today. Let's pray. O glorious and righteous Lord, we thank you that you are the God over all the earth. You are the one who has made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything under the earth and everything that fills the seas and the skies and you have made us. You've made us for your own glory. So we pray today that you would, by your word, teach us how to live in a way that glorifies you. Teach us how to be prepared for that day uh, when you will come again and judge uh, the creation that you have made by your righteousness. Help us, O Lord, uh, to see Christ, to see the provision that he gives us in himself, to stand in his righteousness before you, to be brought before you and to be called your child and to be welcomed. O Lord, help us, we pray, by your Spirit to take hold of this mercy that you have for us and to rejoice in the one who came and lived and died and rose again on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 54. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Well, thus far today, God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we read it and as we study it together. I don't know if you've uh, you've seen the headlines, but to me, one of the more uh, interesting narratives to come out of all the news surrounding this coronavirus stuff is, in a sense, the unexpected vindication of the survivalist community. Uh, the survivalists, uh, sometimes known as the doomsday preppers, uh, largely because of a reality TV show by that same name, doomsday preppers. And you can find that on Netflix if you want to see more about them, but the name itself conjures up this, this idea, this image of uh, conspiracy theorists, if you will. 
uh, people that are that are maybe a little bit out of touch and they're living out there somewhere off the grid and they've got this underground bunker and it's just stocked with uh, with a decade worth of dry goods and medical supplies and all the things that they would need uh, should a cataclysm occur. And really, they're not all that intense, though some of them probably are. Uh, but when you think of the survivalist community, you should think typically of the people who, who keep a bag with them. They call it a go bag. It's a bag full of medicine, a bag full of supplies, and they keep it in their trunk everywhere that they go. So it's uh, easy access in case they have to get out of Dodge, if you will. Uh, these are the people who uh, stored up two years of food to get ready for Y2K, if you were around to remember that. Generally, the prepping community is seen by the wider culture as a, a sort of fringe group, depending on how far down the rabbit trail you've gone into that community. There are people that, uh, again, are easy to ridicule sometimes as over the top. Uh, but lo and behold, suddenly in March, uh, when everyone was scrambling to find paper products, uh, the survivalists didn't seem so crazy to the rest of the world. In fact, uh, the Boston Globe ran an article in March that profiled three New England preppers. And by the end, they suggested, really, we could all benefit probably from from a more prepared, more uh, independent, more sustainable lifestyle, a kind of living that, that doesn't depend on perishables and disposables and all these multinational supply chains that bring us our goods when we show up in the grocery stores. Well, apart from uh, general stocking up, I, I can't tell you the best way to prep uh, for these things. I couldn't tell you how to get ready for a global financial collapse or any of the calamities uh, that motivate uh, the prepping community. But I do know uh, that throughout this chapter that we've been reading, chapter 12 of Luke's Gospel, Jesus has been urging his followers to be spiritually prepared for the day when time and eternity collide. And that's why early on, in the beginning of the chapter, Jesus told his disciples they ought to be prepared uh, through living with integrity. There's a day coming, Jesus told us, when God will come to judge all the secrets of the hearts of men, and we need to be ready for that. We need to be prepared. Then he told us how to prepare our possessions, how to handle them, expecting that our lives are going to be demanded of us. And how do we do that? Well, we, we store up treasures in heaven, not just stockpiles here on earth. We get ready for the day when we will be called to account Jesus told us, taught us to be like waiting, watchful servants, always prepared for their master to return at any moment, always expecting that he's just around the corner. Last week, we saw that Christ wants us to be prepared for the realities of a world that is divided by the gospel. That's the overall arc of Jesus' teaching in this whole chapter. Our good shepherd is preoccupied with making sure his people are prepared for the day of the Lord and all of its implications. Here at the end, at the close of this chapter, there is one more call to be prepared. Jesus has been speaking to his disciples largely, but now turns and speaks to the crowds, the people that have been on the periphery, the people that have been overhearing and eavesdropping into their conversation. And Jesus tells them they need to discern the times. They need to be prepared. They need to recognize that this world is passing away, and now is the time to seek the Lord while he may be found. And it seems, after this very heavy passage, this chapter that we've been reading, it's not full of, 
light fare. This isn't telling us how to just be a good neighbor, a productive employee. Jesus is dealing with life on the edge of eternity, and this is a heavy chapter. And now it almost seems like there's just one more warning at the end of a long list of judgments in this chapter, but really this is an act of kindness. This passage, you understand, is a gospel call. It's an invitation to anyone who will come. Jesus is offering mercy to those who have eyes to see it. And this message is for us as well, that today is the day of decision. Now is the time to be prepared for the day of the Lord. Well, here in these verses, I think preparedness really all comes down to being open having a certain, certain openness toward Christ and what God is doing through him. It's about uh, having our eyes open to see what God is doing in the Son that he sent into the world. And once our eyes are opened, it's about having our hands that are open to receive his reconciliation in Christ. And those are going to be our two points today, that we have a call here to open our eyes and a call also to open our hands. We begin with... A call to open our eyes to God's work in Jesus. Now, in verses 54 to 56, as you look at the text, you notice that Jesus is diagnosing a case of blindness. These crowds have been there, and they have witnessed his ministry, and yet they did not trust him as their Savior. Jesus is saying that there is a spiritual ignorance that has left these people unprepared for the day of the Lord. In fact, they're their blindness, their ignorance has not only left them unprepared, but it has left them condemned. Notice that Jesus levels the charge of hypocrisy against them in verse 56. He says that their blindness really is something more than just that normal human natural inability to discern the mysteries of God. This has more to do than simply the fact that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that his ways are higher than our ways. There's something deeper going on here. And so Jesus says that they're being hypocritical. Now that word, hypocrite, uh, that's an important word, again, in this section of Luke. In fact, it was the charge that opened this chapter all the way back in verse 1, when Jesus told his disciples to beware, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And two months ago or so, we looked at that word and we studied it. And perhaps you remember, this is a word that comes from the world of play acting. A hypocrite is a pretender, it's someone who covers their face with a mask and pretends to be someone that they aren't, really. In the case of the Pharisees, they were hypocrites because they claimed to love the law of God and uprightness and, and equity, and they, plan, they, they claimed to love all these things, and secretly, we found, at the end of chapter 11, they were plotting to kill the Messiah. They had these hateful hearts, but they covered over those hearts with a veil of piety. Okay, so what about these crowds, though? This seems almost like a pretty strange place to bring up this idea of hypocrisy, until you understand that Jesus is speaking to people who really ought to have known better. That's why he begins by praising their ability, really, to forecast the weather. Now, meteorology in, in those days was fairly simple. It had to do with noticing what direction the wind was blowing and if there were clouds and what those clouds might look like. And then you got a sense for what might happen. And this actually is an illustration that Jesus uses elsewhere uh, in Matthew's gospel in a different circumstance. 
And he talks about noticing that the sky is red in the morning or red in the evening and what that means for the coming day or the next day. And, and so it was rather simple. Everybody knew how to do it. Uh, and in fact, uh, he gives us a few examples here talking about clouds in the east and wind from the south. And, and you have to remember the geography here. So uh, there's the promised land next to the Mediterranean Sea to the west. And so when, uh, when wind would blow and, and moist air would come from the Mediterranean up into Palestine, it would rise up into the hill country and it would condense into clouds. And you could see that and everybody knew what it meant. It meant you had to go inside, you had to wait out the rain until it was all over. Well, likewise, there was hot air that came up from Africa, came from Arabia, it carried uh, this, this dry, scorching heat. And so if you woke up to a southerly wind, you knew you had maybe a few hours to get your work done before everybody had to take a break for the rest of the day because it was unbearably hot. It was pretty simple, says Jesus. As simple as it was, these Galilean peasants had gotten pretty good at predicting the weather. In fact, he mentions there is this sort of threefold uh, approach. They see something, they say something, and then it happens exactly as they predict it. Uh, verse uh, 55, uh, verse 54 rather, you see a cloud in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens, exactly as you said. The same thing for the south, uh, you see the wind, you predict the heat, and guess what? You're right. It's just the way you thought it would be. Jesus is talking here about uh, their intelligence, this sort of human ability to live in the world and to notice observable patterns and then to draw inferences and conclusions from what we're seeing. We do this all the time. We do this with the weather, even though it's a lot more complicated. We've got uh, barometric pressure and El Ninos and storm fronts and Doppler radar and all these things that you can track, but you can still open your phone or turn on the Weather Channel and know exactly what to expect outside most of the time. We're thankful for those scientists and those people who are out there who are making those curves and those graphs and they're, they're tracking patterns all around us and they're giving us advice on these behaviors that we ought to take, these conclusions that we ought to draw. We do this all the time and Jesus is telling us in a sense, actually it's, it's possible to be very good at understanding these sorts of things living in the world and interpreting it to our own advantage, it's very possible to get good at understanding those things and yet completely ignore the signs of a spiritual storm that's cresting over the horizon. That's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. It's not because they're unable uh, to draw a conclusion from the data about Jesus, but rather because they are unwilling to draw a conclusion about Jesus. You hypocrites, he says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth in the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? That's the question. It's a why question. It's a motivation question. Where does it come from? How does it happen that you can't see what's right in front of you, Jesus is asking them? Well, maybe because they're unintelligent. Well, no, we already saw that that's not the point. It's not just that they're so dense they couldn't recognize the Savior in front of them. Spiritual blindness has nothing to do with our IQ. Not even when Presbyterians get a little uppity and we begin to convince ourselves that really we're the ones who are just smart enough to understand Christianity and the rest of the world is left in the lurch. It doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. Well, what then? Well, maybe it was because Jesus hadn't shown them enough evidence about who he was and what he had come to do. That wasn't the case either. 
In fact, uh, everything that Jesus did, everything he said was a witness to his identity and his purpose in the world. Think about uh, when John sent his disciples to ask Jesus whether he was the prophet who was coming or whether they ought to wait for someone else. What does it tell us? It's back in Luke chapter 7, verse 21 tells us that in that very hour, Jesus did all kinds of miracles. And then uh, he turned and he said to them, go and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. Give him the data. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. He doesn't give John a conclusion. He says, let John make his own conclusion. Let him draw an inference from all that you've seen, all that you've witnessed. The facts are there for everybody to see. Jesus proved to be the Messiah that God had prepared his people for in his word. His entire ministry, not to mention uh, his death and his resurrection, were a witness to who he was. And that means maybe the crowds didn't recognize Jesus because they simply didn't want to know the truth. Or maybe they were a lot like the Pharisees back in verse 1. Maybe they were a lot like the ones who claimed to be committed to the truth, and yet they refused to acknowledge it when it showed up in the flesh. Maybe Jesus' presence among them actually made demands on their lives that were a little bit weightier than they were ready to meet. In Luke chapter 22, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 67, Jesus will stand before the Sanhedrin, uh, and the religious leaders are going to press the question, if you are the Christ, tell us. They want plain, unadulterated truth. And what's Jesus' answer to them? Well, it's not like the answer he gave to John's disciples. John's disciples came saying, are you the one who is to come? Should we wait for another? Jesus says, take a look. What do you think? And the Sanhedrin will say, if you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus answers them, if I tell you, you will not believe. It's not a matter of, of your intelligence. It's not a matter of the evidence, actually. It's a very different approach because Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knows those who are searching for him, and he knows the ones who are trying to ignore all the signs of his ministry. Jesus knows that spiritual blindness is not a matter of intelligence or insufficient evidence. It doesn't come down to simple ignorance. Spiritual blindness is a matter of willful unbelief. That's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1. Humanity is blind to spiritual realities. Why? Because men in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's what it is. It's a burying. It's a suppression of the truth. They see it. It's right there in front of them, and they bury it. Spiritual blindness is a suppression of the truth. It is a refusal to accept that God is who he says he is. It is a sort of defense mechanism against recognizing that there's a God who is able to make demands of us and our lives and our worship and, and our faith and our behavior. And so Jesus knows that blindness is a matter of unbelief. Now, in the case of Jesus' ministry, suppressing that truth means denying also that we can be reconciled to this God on the basis of something that stands outside of our own merits and our own status. 
That's the demand that Jesus makes on us, to recognize, to acknowledge that we are unable to stand before God by our own merits. That's why he said they were unable to interpret the present time. Now that getting uh, too far into the weeds, there are a few words, too, namely in the New Testament, uh, that sometimes show up translated as the word time in our English Bibles. There is uh, the word chronos. Uh, that means time as we typically think of it, a, a series of events that unfolds. It's how we, it's how we mark our lives and, and history. It's, it's that sort of flow that, that carries us along from one moment to the next. Kronos is, is time as a phenomenon, just uh, witnessed in creation. But there's another word. Uh, that's the word here. It's the word kairos. And kairos speaks of time not just as a phenomenon but as an opportunity. Kairos uh, sort of gathers a bunch of points in history together under one heading and it gives them a certain significance together. It speaks of the character of a time. So you can live in a time of peace or a time of war. You can live in a time of hardship. You can live in a time of pandemic and social isolation. You can, you can live in specific times and we can group it together and give it a certain significance. And Jesus says there's a significance that these people are missing when they close their eyes to his ministry. Jesus came into the world proclaiming a kairos, a time of opportunity. It is all the time between Jesus' first coming and between his second advent. It's a time that makes demands of us, but it's also a time that offers promises. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus came preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's an opportunity. It's only an opportunity if you're willing to admit that it's an opportunity that you need. Only if you're willing to admit that Christ came to reconcile us to God through a righteousness that lies outside of ourselves. And that's what the crowds refused. They loved having a teacher who could come and improve their lives a little bit. They loved this healer who could take their pain away, who could make their children whole. They loved uh, having this outspoken leader who sometimes put those pompous religious leaders in their place. It was fun to sit back and watch Jesus take them to task. They loved some of the things that he said and some of the things that he did, but they didn't really want somebody who would interrupt the spiritual status quo the way they'd gotten used to things. They didn't really want a master who would expect them to lay down their lives and to follow him into ridicule and rejection. They didn't want a preacher who told them truth that left them convicted of sin and in need of a savior. In fact, they didn't want anyone who told them they needed anyone other than themselves. When Jesus came proclaiming, miracles and preaching the gospel, these well-informed, intelligent people looked at Jesus and said, yeah, I don't know, I'm not so sure about that guy. I don't know, maybe he's Elijah. <laughs> maybe, maybe he's one of the prophets. Maybe he's somebody who can make us feel nostalgic and safe all at the same time because it's sort of removed from us. It's just kind of out there. Maybe he's like that. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. Not because they can't see the truth of his ministry, but because they won't see it, and they refused. I think today Jesus is warning us not to be so blind. 
not to be so secure in our own position that we'll miss the opportunity we have at knowing him and who he is and what he means to our lives. Don't be so satisfied in our own spiritual security, the, the status that we think we have, that we miss God's gift of forgiveness and peace that he offers through, through Jesus. And Jesus wants us to be prepared for the day of judgment. And that begins with opening our eyes to the work that God has done in Jesus Christ. But then if your eyes have been opened, next you've got to open your hands to receive God's mercy. Now, in the remaining verses uh, of this text, <clears throat> excuse me again, <clears throat> in the remaining verses of this text, Jesus is urging his hearers to apply the opportunity of the gospel to their lives. And he does it with another question of why. You notice uh, verse 56, uh, he says, why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Then verse 57, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? That is, why can't you see what this requires of you? Why don't you see what it means to take hold of this opportunity at reconciliation? Jesus, you know, is not conducting some, uh, some sociological study. He doesn't just want his hearers to, to ponder the significance of what it might mean to live in the last days. He actually wants them to do something with all of this data that they can interpret and all the things that they can see. He's calling these crowds to settle their accounts with God while there's still time. And that's why he switches metaphors here in the last verses. He goes from talking about reading the weather to escaping prison. And those uh, on the surface are very different, and, and that's why perhaps our ESV uh, separates them and puts a heading. But really, this is the same issue. Jesus is telling these people that they have a decision to make based on the current situation that they're facing both in dealing with the weather and dealing with this, uh, this accusation against them. They need to be wise enough to discern their circumstances, and then they need to be bold enough to do what their circumstances require of them. Think about it. When you don't correctly read the signs of the weather, what happens? Our day, it's not a big deal. Small inconvenience. You might be underdressed. Uh, overdressed. You might uh, get a little bit wet on the way from the office to the car. No big deal. But in their day, weather was a big deal. It was life and death. You misread the weather. It could be uh, a day's wages. It could be a year's crops. If you put in your crops or you harvest your crops under the wrong conditions, your family could suffer. This was a big deal. They needed to know what was going on with the weather so that they could act accordingly. It was all about putting things into practice. Well, what again then, if you, if you misread the signs of this impending judgment? What if you were headed for a court case and you pretended that you were innocent, but everybody else knew that you were guilty? Well, what happens then? Well, the reality is that when you show your face before the judge, you, you enter into this unstoppable cascade of events. Notice how Jesus puts it. Once the process begins, it doesn't stop. There is a point of opportunity. There is a point of decision. Jesus says, make an effort. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. The judge hands you to the officer. The officer puts you in prison, and I tell you, you will not get out until you pay the last penalty. Once that process is put in place, once you show up before the judge, there's nothing to stop the judgment that is coming. And no, Jesus is not saying that God's judgment is the kind of thing that we can pay back if only we have enough time. 
Give us 10,000 years, 20,000 years in purgatory. Eventually, we'll, we'll pay it back. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's using this illustration to tell us that if even man's judgment goes down to the last copper coin, then God's verdict will be inescapable when we stand before him. Jesus is convincing us that God's judgment is coming. And yet, while we breathe, we live in the day of decision. So make it an effort, he says. Strive for reconciliation. Leave no offer of mercy unclaimed. If your accuser offers you a way of escape, you'd be a fool to turn it down. You'd either be a fool or you'd be extremely confident of your own innocence. Because the reality is there are some situations where a plea deal isn't the best approach. If you are sure you've got a good chance of being found innocent, or if you think you can hire uh, those expensive lawyers that no jury could withstand, well, then maybe you should go for the trial. Maybe you can come out better on the other side. But in the courtroom that Jesus has in mind, there is no human wisdom that can stand against God's righteousness. There is no sin that will remain secret on the day of God's judgment. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14 tells us God will bring every act to judgment, every deed hidden, whether good or evil. Likewise, Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus tells us, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. So there we have the universal testimony of the Old and the New Testaments, every deed, every word, every misstep that we've placed against God the rebellion that hides behind those actions, those deeds, those thoughts, those words. And Jesus wants us to be aware of the record that's against us. He wants us to be convinced that we need to settle while there is time. You see, Jesus isn't just trying to deflate our egos. He's being merciful. He's warning us of the fact that we are heading for a judgment that will be complete and it will be conclusive. And if we stand before the Lord on the record of our behavior, we will be condemned. And even an eternity will not suffice to repay the debt that sinners owe to a righteous God. So Jesus tells us, while you're on the way, while there is time, make an effort to settle with your accuser. Apply yourself. Plead for mercy. Take the bargain on the terms that are offered. Surrender yourself and open your hands to receive God's mercy. Now, the bad news is that if you decide to do that, if you make the effort, the bad news is that you're going to have to admit that you're guilty in the first place. But the good news is that Christ has already paid the debt that allows guilty sinners to go free. Phil Riken says, Actually, our case is pretty easily settled. It's settled easily, not because we're innocent, not because we can mount any kind of defense on our own behalf. Our case is settled easily because the judge of the high court is also willing to be our savior. The same judge, the same Jesus who is coming in judgment also suffered judgment when he was crucified for our sins. And so Jesus says we ought to make an effort The case is easily settled. The one who is our judge is also our substitute. Make an effort, he says. Well, what's the effort we've got to make? You already know it, don't you? 
if you can interpret the time, if you know the significance and the opportunity of what's before us in the ministry of Christ, you already know the effort that opens our hands to mercy. Jesus came preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the effort. That's what it takes to settle our accounts and to prepare for judgment. In one sense, it's a very small thing, but in another sense, it requires everything of us. It's a call to lay down our self-righteousness and to turn from our sin and to entrust ourselves and our future to God's promises. And today, folks, if, if you're listening and you've never put your faith in Jesus and his blood and righteousness, now is the time. This is the opportunity. For those kids, those children, those young people who are listening, who are still standing on the edge like the crowds. And you've been watching others grow in discipleship all their lives. And you're still wondering, maybe this has something to do with you. Now is the day of decision. Now is the time. While you're yet on the way, while you yet have breath, don't be fooled into thinking that you're very young and this is all a very long way off. Now is the day. Christ calls us to open our eyes to see what he's doing through the Lord Jesus Christ, to open our hands to receive mercy in his name, repent and believe in the gospel. And then again, I know that the vast majority of you have already done that. You've been prepared for the day of the Lord for 10 years or 20 years or 40 years or more maybe. Longer than I've been alive, that's for sure. And, and the question is, does this passage have anything to say to the rest of you? Is this the sort of thing that we should just put into our back pocket, file away for the next time we have a conversation with an unbeliever and say, oh yes, I remember three months ago our pastor said something that you need to hear. Well, it doesn't mean anything to me. Now, the truth is we never get very far from this, this passage in our Christian life. We grow in Jesus by God's grace, but by his spirit, we make strides in sanctification. By his mercy, uh, we are grown more and more. We conformed more and more to the image of the Son. But even after decades of growing with Christ, we never get to the place that we, we don't need the offer that Jesus makes in this passage. Not because it, it gets stale in our lives, not because somehow we need to renew it by our own efforts over and over and over again, but because the gospel isn't just how we begin our Christian lives. It's how we continue our lives. It's how we live in preparation each day until Christ returns. There are several pastors that I like to listen to and, and uh, preachers that I like to hear. One of those is Derek Thomas. He's been a pastor for more than 40 years. Uh, but he says uh, that each morning when he steps out of bed, he recites the same prayer. And so probably every third sermon that I hear of Derek Thomas, I hear a quote uh, of the third verse of uh, Rock of Ages. That's what he prays every morning. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Dr. Thomas has been praying that prayer for half of his life or better, every day. And yet he still, he, begins, he still begins every day with the same words of confession and faith. And I wish that more of us understood what Derek Thomas understands. 
that the Lord would work it into the hearts of those who have already been walking with him for a long time. Would that more of us knew how easy it is to focus only on the mundane things of life, to get wrapped up in the weather channel and storm fronts and graphs and charts about the coronavirus and schedules and all of the normal things that we can't wait to get back to when the pandemic is over. We can get so wrapped up in all of those things and we can forget that we live in a world that's passing away. Even believers who have been walking with the Lord for years, we can forget that. We can forget that Jesus has come to give himself so that we can expect life and hope with him for eternity. I think that's the reminder that we need over and over again, that Christ has come to give mercy to those with eyes to see it. And perhaps today that's the message you need to hear as well. Won't you join me as we go in prayer together before our Lord? Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that you are the one who loves us and has given your son for your children. We pray that you would call many who perhaps have heard this and have, have never committed themselves by your Spirit uh, to the Son. We pray that you would give faith and repentance to those who have been contemplating this in their own lives for a long time. We pray that you would give assurance to those who have none. Assurance that you're the one who's come and you have settled accounts and you have reconciled us to the Father so that we are ready for the day of judgment. Thank you for sending Jesus to take judgment upon himself, to lay down his life in order that he may take it up again, that he may take us up to where he is, that we may be with you. We may see him and be like him as he is. We thank you, O Lord, for the gospel, and we pray that for all your children, we would continue walking in it, believing in it, and trusting in you all our days until you bring us to yourself. O oh Lord, keep us in constant preparation for that day through Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. And now, brothers and sisters in Christ, hear God's word for you, his benediction. And now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.